Hey, this is Grant Haver, co-host of the DSR Daily Brief. Every weekend, we do a bonus brief conversation with an expert about a topic from the week exclusively for our members. This weekend, we are opening it up to non-members so you can hear a little bit of what you've been missing. If you like the conversation and want more, please consider becoming a member of the DSR Network for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy part one of our conversation with Dr. Kamran Bukhari. It's the weekend, and this is your DSR Daily Bonus Brief. I'm Grant Haver. And I'm Chris Kotnor. Today, we're joined by Kamran Bukhari, Director of Analytical Development at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. Dr. Bakari, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So there's been a lot of news over the past few days about a potential final draft of a new Iran nuclear deal. How likely is it that we're going to see a new deal in the coming weeks? And what do you think a deal looks like? I live by the adage, never say never. And so it's always possible. But having said that, I also want to point out that there are just so many obstacles in the path of a new nuclear deal. Number one is that the Biden administration, even if we were not going into midterm elections, and even if its domestic political ratings were not low, they are under the gun to not repeat or have something similar to what the Obama administration cut in July of 2015. As you know, the Trump presidency basically set the bar very high in the sense that he went for a maximum pressure policy. Obviously, it didn't produce the desired results. Tensions with Iran flared up. and But now we have an administration that's saying and actually working towards a deal of sorts. The question is, is it going to be any different than the one from 2015? And by that, I mean that A, is it going to be more, if you will, robust and robust in two senses? One is that, uh, let's say a future president comes and does, does not agree with it and does the same thing as President Trump did. Number two, and more importantly, is it filling the holes that existed in the previous deal? And those, those holes were that essentially Iran not only got sanctions respite, but over time, because of the sunset clauses, was able to sort of hold off on any nuclear progress or experimentation in different spheres, and it's very detailed, for a number of years. And after that, they're off the hook. The Obama deal delayed the program and did not really stop it. Obviously, those who, su- who supported the deal and, and, and the decision will say, yes, it does, and they have their various arguments. But that's sort of the challenge. Now let's factor in the midterm elections. Let's factor in that the Biden White House has a lot of problems on multiple fronts. And we have 2024 is only two years away. So will they engage in a kind of deal that looks, I wouldn't say bad, but something to give the Republicans a bigger stick to beat this administration and the Democrats in the coming elections. Dr. Bakari, assuming that a deal 
is actually reached, what's the likelihood that Iran will abide by that deal? And why would they not just continue to make nuclear weapons in secret? You're absolutely right. We know that, you know, the Iranians have, I mean, if we didn't catch them in 2002, they were covertly developing a nuclear program. And and this isn't just any regime. This is a regime that wants to alter the regional security architecture in the Middle East, to say the least. I mean, they have influence in Afghanistan. They have influence in the Caucasus and, and some influence in Central Asia. But their strategic front yard is the Arab world. And that's where they've been putting their money and their energy into projecting influence and power. They have a sphere of influence that's almost contiguous, and it runs from the Iranian border with Iraq all the way to the Eastern Med because of proxies and regimes that are aligned with Iran. So this regime is is also, while it continues, while we can expect it to continue to develop nuclear weapons, because we have no way of fully guaranteeing that because it depends on access to sites. And let's say XYZ sites are part of a deal and would like they were in the 2015. And there is a W site that we don't know about. We just can't guarantee it. In the meantime, while nuclear weapons and, and you know we can go into the details of where Iran really is in terms of developing nuclear technology for weapons purposes, while it's pursuing that, that's a more longer term goal. The immediate goal of continuing to project power into the Arab world will continue because they would have received a lot of cash that will in, be injected into their system. For the past several years, they've been really hamstrung in the sense that they reached the limits of what they could do both on the foreign policy front as well as maintain calm on the domestic political uh, economic front. And this regime is evolving internally as well. So we have to be mindful that they will continue. They're not going to give up nukes. But what's worth more to them in the here and now is their sphere of influence in the Arab world. And for that, they need the cash. And the cash can be extracted from the international community through a nuclear deal. In other words, they're using in the here and now, the nuclear program is, is worth more as a bargaining chip than an actual weapons capability because that, uh, you know, there are several levels of engineering that they'll have to go through in order to be able to acquire a deliverable device. One of the arguments you sometimes hear from people who want to pull out American influence in the Middle East is just like, let them have at it. When we made the Iran nuclear deal, it scared our allies enough to come together. You know, Saudi is stepping up, Israel is stepping up. They're kind of forming their own little block. What's to say that we wouldn't just see more of that going forward? A Saudi Arabia that actually spends money on defense, that their military actually is usable and better than making an Iran nuclear deal that then Iran just runs roughshod over the rest of the region. I think there is nuance there. So it's sort of like, you know, to step away from sort of, hey, we should be involved in this versus we shouldn't be. And I think that binary is too generic, too broad and vague. There's a lot of nuance in between. So number one is, as you pointed out, Grant, 
that over the years, our Gulf allies, particularly the UAE and then Saudi Arabia, have upped their game in the sense that in years past, they would rely, and decades past actually, they would rely on American security guarantees, a large American footprint in, in the region, and basically dependent on Washington to meet threats. And obviously the threat since 79 is the Islamic Republic of Iran, the, the, the biggest one. That, I think we're, we're past that. I think that now we're seeing the Amaratis, we're seeing the Saudis and others increase their participation in the regional security architecture, the Abraham Accords with Israel, the normalization of relations, especially after the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011, we've progressively seen the Saudis and the Emiratis play a much more overt and, and direct role in stabilizing the region and making sure that you know Iran is kept in check. The problem with that is that, that we can't sort of just say, okay, We'll let them handle it along with the Israelis, because at the end of the day, A, the United States is the superpower of the world, and it does the heavy lifting of making sure that there's international security, particularly in areas like the Middle East. And then they're not at a point where they can successfully, if you will, counter Iran. And the reason for that, and I wrote a piece in the National Interest a few years ago that this process of invigoration of the Arab world, stabilizing it, making it, you know, more uh, the, the regimes more st- stable and being able to fend for themselves, that's going to take time. But at the same time, while the, the Saudis and the Emiratis have done far more than they used to do, we have to realize that Iran has its tentacles deep inside the Arab world. Iraq is literally a satellite state of the Iranians. Yes, there's some resistance to the Iranians, but by and large, ever since the US regime change effort in 2003, unfortunately, the unintended consequence was that Iraq fell into the orbit of Iran. And Syria has long been part of the Iranian axis in the region. And and, and then there's Hezbollah in Lebanon. And most recently, in the last 12 years or so, the Iranians have been able to play on the Arabian Peninsula in the backyard of the Saudis in Yemen with the Houthis. So this is something that the Saudis and the Irani, uh, the Emiratis, along with the Israelis, can't roll back by themselves. So they need the United States. The United States has to play a role. Now, I am, uh, I'm all for balance of power, as in that the United States should not be doing more than it's needed. It should build regional alliances, kind of like what we're doing in the Western Pacific, you know, with this quad. We're trying to counter China by aligning with our partners in Japan, Australia. We've added India to the thing and the whole Indo-Pacific command designation change in DOD. So it is a balance of power. You use regional allies to counter an adversary who is trying to change or radically alter or has radical designs for what regional and international security should look like. We had so much to discuss that we had to split this into two conversations. So become a member and tune back in tomorrow to hear us talk about why it's taking Iran so long to build a nuclear weapon 
and what a deal would mean for Iran's neighbors in Central Asia.